Welcome to the Driving Change Podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network, where we live at the intersection of neuroscience and storytelling. If you love great stories and you love understanding the mindset it takes to be a world-class change agent, then join us as our fascinating guests from all walks of life unpack their unique journeys of perseverance and passion, of expertise and experience, and be inspired to use your own story to drive change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. Um, as usual, I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. You know, every once in a while, you get to interview a guest who you've admired from afar for a long time, who's accomplished so much in their life that it's the, they're like the Forrest Gump of accomplishments. They've had so many different lives, and they've added so much value to the world. And today's guest, Jim Cathcart, is one of those guys. If you don't know Jim, I don't know what you've been doing out there. He wrote relationship selling is one of his, he's, he's known for that, but he's, he's known for way more than that. He's a professor. He's a speaker. He's done a Ted, a Ted talk. He's been everywhere. And this guy has been known as one of the keynote speaking gurus for as long as keynote speaking has been around. He's spoken all over the world on so many stages. I bet you he's probably lost track of how many keynotes he's actually done. I've got an actual list of every one of them. That's uh, that's amazing. That that is amazing. I've got the details on my first paid speech going all the way back. Holy cow! And so I, I think you're going to get so much out of this today because he had so much value to everybody he comes in contact with today. And we're going to give you resources at the end. But uh, I just wanted to say thank you to Jim Cathcart for being on the show as somebody that I've admired for a long time. You're just it's an honor to have you on. Thank you, Jeff. It's it's a treat for me. So thank you. And the cool thing is how this came about. A friend of mine said, hey, I'm reading Neural Selling, and look, you're quoted in Chapter 3. And I saw that, and I reached out, and the next thing I know, we're on the air together, and I love that. So thank you. Well, this was just a five-year strategy for me to just to get to meet you. I'm like, if I bet if I quote him as a... In the opening of one of my chapters, some point someone will tell him I quoted him, and then he'll be forced to go get the book to figure out what I quoted him on, and eventually we'll get to meet. <laughs> Let me write a note to myself to do that. <laughs> it's it's a long play, you know. It's not an urgent short term strategy. You got you got to play the long play on it. So, well, as I warned you in the pre show, like everybody on the show, you only get one question that's scripted. That's the question that everyone's really dying to understand is. Take us back and give us that origin story. Little Jimmy, like who who are you? Where do you come from? Who influenced your life that lets you end up being such a prolific, powerful influencer of people and speakers and business? And you're just a judge. So take us all the way back and tell us that story. Okay. Yeah, I've been absolutely blessed. I mean, I've written 25 books. I've delivered 3,500 paid speeches all over the world, like you were saying, and received every major award that they give to professional speakers, basically on earth. So I have been doubly, triply, quadruply blessed in my career. But when I started out, I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. I live in Austin, Texas today and was in California for 37 years, but I was born in Little Rock. Dad was a telephone repairman. Mom was a homemaker. I have a little sister, Kathy, and um, my grandfather, Grandfather Cathcart, had been disabled in his 60s uh, by a stroke that made him completely 
incapable of, of movement or communication for the rest of his life, which was seven years. He spent in our front bedroom in a hospital bed. And my mom took care of him and my grandmother, who needed help too. And then she cared for my little sister and me. And dad was on the road as a lineman for the phone company and then a repairman later on. So I didn't expect much growing up. You know, I expected to have an ordinary life. We lived in uh, just outside of the heart of the city in a suburban neighborhood. And I walked three blocks to school and it was a baby boom. You know, I was born on the first year of the baby boom, 1946. I'll save you the math. I'm in my late 70s. And um, so life was sweet. I mean, it was like old TV shows like Father Knows Best and, and Leave it to Beaver and things like that. You know, my three sons. Uh, I had tons of kids to play with in the neighborhood. And we'd go out in the, in the afternoon after school and around dark, our moms would step onto the back porches and say, Jimmy, come home, you know, and so I'd make my way home and life was good. And um, I, I expected I would probably grow up, go to work for the phone company, although I didn't want to be a lineman or a repairman. I thought maybe I'd work in an office and that would be good. Uh, my dad was in the Army. He was uh, sort of like Tom Hanks' character in Saving Private Ryan. He was a captain in the Army in the Pacific, not not Europe. Um, and he fought on Guadalcanal and, you know, Luzon and the Philippines. And when he was 22 years old, he was a young lieutenant or had just become captain maybe. And he was in occupied Japan as an acting mayor of one of the cities when we took over Japan. Wow, mind-blowing differences in experience. And he had grown up in Thayer, Missouri, which is about the size of this mouse for my computer. Um, he, he never expected much, but when World War II broke out, he signed up and you know, when he came back, he was an experienced, a very experienced and successful leader and then he went to work for the phone company. Go figure. You'd think he'd have pursued leadership, but he didn't. But the military side of him inspired me more than the telephone side. And so I, he stayed involved in the National Guard. And I went to, you know, weekend drills and sometimes summer camp with him. And so that was my role model. And then my other role models were the obvious ones of my generation, you know, Davy Crockett. Fess Parker on TV and Roy Rogers, the cowboy and uh, Tarzan and John Wayne and, you know, Elvis. That, that's what I wanted to grow up to be, one of those. But I didn't have any encouragement. My mom and dad pretty much just said, be a good person, be a good neighbor, be a good citizen, be a patriot. Um, and then when it's your turn, get out of the way. You know, <laughs> so I figured, mm. how long does my gene pool live? Let's see. Right. You know, that's when I'm checking out. And uh, right. um, I, I got married in 1970. And I was um, uh, working shortly thereafter at the Little Rock Housing Authority, the Urban Renewal Agency for Arkansas. And I was an assistant to a man who was not busy. His name was Bob Moore. He was a loan specialist and he didn't need help. And I was his helper. 
And so I sat at my gunmetal gray government desk every day and read books about urban renewal or whatever else and twiddled my thumbs and waited to be called on, which seldom happened. So I read the Bible cover to cover at work in three months. I mean, that's some spare time. <laughs> that's and, some spare time. And one for day sure. I was sitting there, and in the next room, there was a radio playing, and I heard a deep voice on the radio, and it was the voice of Earl Nightingale. And the message was this one Miracle of Your Mind. That uh, daily program, Nightingale was on like 900 radio stations around the world, it considered to be the dean of personal motivation. And the miracle of your mind, this one's on cassette. Can you explain to the audience what a cassette is, Jim? Yeah, it's a little box that has, <laughs> has a record in it. What's a record? It's an audio recording. Uh, <clears throat> so the miracle of your mind, it says an hour a day assures your position in the top 5%. Well, that particular day on the radio, Earl Nightingale said, if you'll spend one hour extra every day, studying your chosen field, in five years or less, you'll be a national authority. Jeff, I said, what? That actually works. Hour a day, five days a week, 50 weeks a year, five years, 1,250 hours. One topic? Yeah, that would make you a, a very knowledgeable person on that topic. If the topic was narrow enough, you could be one of the leading authorities in the nation on that topic. Hmm. So if you're studying leadership, that's too broad. You would just become knowledgeable. But if it's right. team leadership of military teams in crisis situations, then when it comes time for combat planning, they want to call on you, you know, right. or if it's telephone service for small communities with limited resources in a uh, dangerous weather environment, you would be the specialist they'd call on whenever you're going into some remote mountain village to put in phone service and you don't have all the technology that you need, right? So yep. the more narrow the subject, the more quickly you advance. And I thought, I could actually, I, I mean me, me, the, the C minus student, the guy who was never an athlete, the guy who didn't score high on his IQ test, the ordinary kid. I could actually be something. Hmm. What do I want to be? No clue. And then it hit me a few weeks later. I want to do what he does. Well, what does he do? I don't really know. I just knew I wanted to help people grow, but I had a problem. I, I had not grown. So it's kind of like starting a speaking career when you've never given a speech and you got nothing to say. And um, so that's going to keep your fees relatively low. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take his advice and I'm going to become a fanatical student of personal development, of applied behavioral science, you know, practical psychology. And so I did. And, and when I say fanatical, look it up. That's the way I mean it. I mean outrageously overcommitted to it, unreasonably dedicated to that goal. So I read Think and Grow Rich. This is a yep. first edition copy of that. I read, well, here, I got a whole bunch of them. 
How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I read The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. Later, I found, I met Zig Ziglar and got See You at the Top. This picture on the back of that book has him with Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. Both of those gentlemen became my friends and colleagues, and I worked together with both of them. I didn't know Dale Carnegie, but I knew people that worked one-to-one with him. Napoleon Hill, author of Think and Grow Rich, his personal manager and business partner in the last part of his career was W. Clement Stone, who was the creator of Combined Insurance Company of North America, the owner of Success Unlimited magazine, who the president of that magazine and editor was Og Mandino, author of Greatest Salesman in the World. And um, W. Clement Stone wrote the Success Through a Positive Mental Attitude, and he's the guy that popularized PMA, Positive Mental Attitude. I met him. I worked with him. I served on a committee with him. I've been in his personal office you know, as a guest. And he introduced me to Ogmandino and Ogmandino and I became good friends. And I've been in Og's home and Og put a cover endorsement on my first edition of Relationship Selling and so did Zig Ziglar. Wow. That's amazing. How is all this possible? Well, I, you know, it started by me being a fanatical student several hours a day of reading those books and listening to audio cassettes back in the cassettes day of Earl Nightingale every single day, no exceptions for five years. Did you stay in your, did you stay in that role there at your little gray metal government issued desk reading these books for five years? Or? When you start learning like that and you start growing and setting goals and, and developing personal qualities that make you basically a success machine, your opportunities tend to expand. And so while I was sitting there at the housing authority doing my usual thing, uh, in the evenings, I'm attending JC's Junior Chamber of Commerce meetings and applying all these ideas. And I'm practicing these in my personal life. And so I got a raise and then I got a promotion. Then I got another raise. Then I was made assistant to the board of directors. And then I was elected president of the Employees Association. I didn't even know they had one. And I did well in that position. And then I got an opportunity to go into business for myself, selling Earl Nightingale's recordings door-to-door to businesses in Little Rock, Arkansas. And then the USJC's national headquarters. This was back when the JC's was big, like Rotary or Lions or, uh, you know, Kiwanis, some of those. It had 356,000 members just in the USA. And I was hired to be director of leadership training for the entire nation in 1975, August of 75. Now I heard Earl Nightingale on the radio in 72. I was 52 pounds overweight, smoking two packs a day, had never set a goal in my life, basically a likable loser. Two years college, new wife and baby at home, And my wife used to have to pull me to a sitting position in the morning to get me up to go to work. Mm. So I was that unmotivated. And then all of a sudden, boom, 
pixie dust, you know, I'm transformed over a period of a few years. And I lost the 52 pounds. I got in shape, became a jogger and became really fit. I was absolutely dedicated to personal growth and every day was immersed in that. And it started showing up in the work I was doing. So there I was selling these motivational recordings door to door and got that position at the USJCs. And they said, okay, write training manuals that others will use and then fly all over the country at our expense and speak at at big conventions to teach people how to use them. And I did. And the first thing I ever wrote that was published was called Communication Dynamics. It was a discussion-based program, four chapters, and it sold over 70,000 copies in the first year or two and ended up in the desk of Ogmandino as one of only three books that he kept in his desk. Wow. That's amazing. How is that possible? How is any of that possible? In 1977, I went off on my own as a professional speaker and author, and that's all I've done ever since. And I've done it as much as one is capable of doing it, I guess, and still going strong. So let's pause for a second, because if I'm listening to this, I'm driving along my car and I'm listening to the show, and I'm used to these crazy wild guests coming on with these amazing stories. Yeah. It's Sometimes you look at people like yourself and you say, well, you know, they just... They're just the gifted speaker. And now hearing your backstory, right, and listening to all the work that it took to get there, and you start to think about that moment. You had the moment, the lightning bolt moment. You overheard Nightingale in the background, and you wanted to do something. But at some point, it went from information to to inspiration to activation. Yeah. And then that activation, though, has to be covered in perspiration, (laughs) does it not? Yeah. And if you want another Asian, it's dedication. And I made the commitment when I joined the JCs. I said, I want to be in this field of personal development. And they had a program called Leadership in Action. And so I participated in that discussion group. And I said, hey, let's do this again. And they said, well, somebody has to be chair of the discussion. So why don't you do it? Jeff, I did four hundred of those in the next two years, 400 meetings in two years after work and on weekends and holidays for no pay, paying my own cost of travel to and from. And I went to 280 different JC's chapters in Arkansas at the time. It was a big deal because the baby boom was their market and and they were everywhere, you know. And so it was kind of like being in the baby food business when all the baby boomers were little. Right. That was a great business to be in. Well, being in the leadership training business for young adults in the 1970s was a great business to be in. They call it, in retrospect, the human potential movement. And I was a part of the early part of that and then became a mainstream part of that. Well, 400 meetings. I can guarantee you the first 50 that I led, I was lame. I was embarrassingly bad. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never done it before. I was just reading the manual aloud, you know, in front of the group to, to right. get the discussion started. And someone would ask a question or make a statement. And I would say, just a second. That is very interesting, Jeff. 
what do you others think about that? You know, I mean, that was just stupid bad, right? Right, right. Mama always did say they'd life is like a box of chocolate. You know, I was, I was Forrest Gump, man. I was there, you know, when all right. this stuff was happening. And, um, and after about 50 or 60 meetings, I was getting pretty good at it. And by the first hundred, I, I was killing it. And the second hundred, third hundred, you know, number 400, I was one of the most popular speakers in the state of Arkansas and businesses were bringing me in to speak. But I was I still hadn't gotten even a hundred dollars for a speech yet. But boy, were you getting reps though, weren't you? Don't you, yeah. don't you ever wonder what like when you became what you became after that? Like the people that were part of the first fifty discussions, don't you ever ever think back where they scratched their head and said, "Who? That Jim guy? Are you yeah. kidding?" <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I remember coming home at the end of the workday and my wife and little baby boy were there. And, and, you know, I would play with him while she, while Paula was fixing dinner. And, and then we'd sit down and eat dinner and I'd say, okay, I'll see you. I'm going to a JC's meeting. And I'd hop in the car and turn on the cassette player and listen to Earl Nightingale all the way to the meeting, which sometimes was four hours away, starting at 6 p.m., Four hours, you know, you get there and do a quick little 10 p.m. meeting and turn around and drive back home four hours. Not cool. So I would right. sleep in a roadside park for an hour or so to keep from falling asleep at the wheel. But most of the meetings were within a 30 minutes or an hour of my house. So it wasn't that bad. So if I'm if I'm driving around and I'm listening to this conversation, and I know that, you know, not everybody's meant to be on the stage speaking and creating a career where you're traveling the world and doing personal development work with folks. But mo every human kind of has that desire for purpose, right? To find that, that, yep. that, that place in their life where they can use their God given abilities and talents to do something, to, to make a mark, to leave a, you know, to leave a legacy. So I think about, I, 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 str I strongly firmly believe that our beliefs tend to influence our behaviors at such a dramatic level that you can say the intensity of one's belief drives the consistency of one's behaviors. And so at one moment you had that, not to go all the way back to the desk again, but you had to have that moment where you okay, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I, this is, I don't even know what I'm, I don't know what I want to do, but I don't want to do this. And something happened where you heard Earl's voice and you say, well, I'd like to do that. How did you have that belief that you could do that? Like what, what was, what was that, that kind of process? You didn't have it. No, I want, I had the desire, but I didn't have the belief. And that's the thing. Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, desire is possibility seeking expression. So that means that something that's possible inside of you is seeking to be expressed through you. I love that statement Love it because I believe that sincerely and I've proven it to be true in my own life. When I sincerely, deeply want something as opposed to a want for like, a, I want a beer or a barbecue sandwich or whatever, you know, that's not a want. That's just an impulse. That's a, a, a craving or a momentary want. That's superficial. I'm talking about the want that is your soul aching to do something. And I, I believe that if that's in us, then what we've got to do as individuals is become a good portal doorway for it to express itself, for it to happen, to become a reality. And that may mean you need to do lots and lots and lots of physical and mental and interpersonal practice. 
it, you know, if, if it's an athletic achievement or if it's music, like I play guitar and sing in clubs and, you know, I, I, I'm a professional musician, but I'm part-time at it. It's my side gig. Um, I don't choose to try to be Juilliard level uh, Hall of Fame good in that field. I want to be competent and occasionally excellent. But in the field of professional speaking and training, being a mentor and guiding other people in their personal growth, I want to be one of the best ever lived. So that means, you know, if you look at your mountain, see how high you want to climb it in that category, that'll tell you how hard the work's going to be. And for me, it was very, very hard at first. And I didn't have the belief. I had a young woman in my audience one time. She was an Olympic gymnast. This was a American Heart Association meeting in Dallas back in the 1980s. And she said, Mr. Cathcart, and I was amazed somebody called me Mr. And I said, yeah. She said, how did you, how did you get the belief that you could do all this? I said, I didn't. I, I, at first, I totally doubted whether I could do it, but I knew I would never give up. So sooner or later, it's going to give in, right? I mean, if you're never going to quit trying, sooner or later, you're going to find a way. It may cost more or take longer or be more painful than you expected. But if you're dedicated to it, it's going to happen. That is the primary success skill is or factor. And that is an absolute commitment to find a way to make it so. That's virtually unstoppable. And I think sometimes, and what I love about that so much is, is that all of us have lots of ideas and we also have lots of, of desires inside of us. We know there's something put in us that says, you know what? I really love being a parent. My wife loves being a mom. Like yeah. she has such a desire to be a great mom that she pursues it with purpose and passion on a daily basis. And she's world-class at it, right? She has other desires, but she reads about it and she talks with others about it and she listens to shows about it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't matter what the category is. It that's can be raising point, right? tulips or, or gathering garbage. It doesn't matter. If right. you commit yourself to being excellent at it and and ultimately succeeding in a in a meaningful way, then that gives your life meaning and purpose. And that's where I think, you know, you talked about, you referenced some of the greatest books ever written on personal development that you have become kind of your foundation. If you think about, if your if our purpose in life is to make a positive impact for the world in a, in a way that influences people outside of ourselves in a positive way, okay, well, that's, that's a big aspirational why. Your what starts to figure itself out, right? If you, if your passion, your purpose, and your desire is, to make life better for others. And I want to make yeah. an impact by serving the world in that way. Your pursuit going down that path, it sounds like what you're saying is it, the doors will start to open up and you'll realize that, hey, these lanes, head down that lane with desire. Don't give up and don't quit, whatever that lane is. And you'll start to see the doors open. It's almost like the universe is waiting for you to pick a lane and go at it with reckless abandon. Actually, the, the, the universe, you know, if you think about it, all things are or possible somehow, uh, not necessarily through you, but a whole lot of things are possible through you. 
And if you develop new skills, new knowledge, new like you learn a new language, all of a sudden the world of your possibilities explodes. If you develop a new vital skill, life skill, then all of a sudden there's another explosion. Um, you made me think of something just a minute ago. Uh, the why there's a quote that I love from ages ago. The person who knows how may have a job, but the one who knows why will probably be their boss. Uh, so when you when you're clear on your why, the how will appear, and and you'll ultimately find that how. Um, there was one other part to that, and it'll come back to me in a moment. But the way you were talking about it is just totally in line with what I've come to experience and what I've seen over all these years. Oh, I know what it was. It's about the universe is waiting. The universe doesn't wait. It's kind of like the phone's ringing. If you didn't answer it, someone did, Right it'll ring again, but it might not be ringing for you. Right. So it's, it's you and me that are inhibiting things. It's not the, not the universe, uh, not being ready and all this kind of like, I think God's telling me something. You think wh who, who's trying to tell you something? God, you mean the, the creative, the, the creator of all reality. Yeah. Really? You think, you think an entity with that much power, tries. I don't think an entity with that much power would ever try anything that didn't instantly succeed 100%. So if God wants you to know something, you know it. Right. <laughs> it might be you need to learn something new. But how many times do you see people, they know that they know it, but then they're, they're, they're waiting for something else, more, more exactly. confirmation of it. Yeah. Yeah. To move. And I, and I know a lot of people, and this is where I love your passion for this is a lot of people that I know, myself included, by the way, in times in my life, we'll stay kind of frozen in, with inaction, waiting for the how and the what versus the, we know the why and we're going to move. We're going to move without the information. You know, I call it the Samuel effect in the old Testament, right? You yeah. know, God told him to go anoint the next King of, of David, uh, of Israel. And he went out to the house of Jesse. He didn't know who, who he was supposed to anoint. He just had to go. And sometimes we're just supposed to go. You think about any journey, let's say, well, first off, let me make a point. Uh, I've had people say to me, I would set goals, but I don't know if I can achieve them. That's the point. <laughs> if you know how to achieve it, it's not a goal. It's a to-do. <laughs> If you know a, a goal is something you don't know how to achieve, but you're absolutely certain you want it, okay. So once you write the, the goal down, you set the goal. What happens next? Your mind has just calibrated itself as a receiver for messages related to that goal. Your heart has opened up to things related to that goal. So you say, "I want a, a midnight blue." 1932 Ford, four-door, with original engine in perfect condition. I can't afford a car like that, but that's what I want. Okay. So what happens when you write that down? Well, you think, yeah, wouldn't that be great? You set it aside and you think, well, you know, 
In other words, here comes an idea, right? You say, I, I could get an old clunker and restore it and have exactly what I want. Hmm. Or I could go to a car museum and find one like that and buy it, you know, or figure out a way to ultimately buy it. Or I could, you know, and you, you just, I could get a job working for auto collectors who have stables full of uh, cars of their own, and I could get around those kind of cars and learn the, the inner workings of that world and be in a position to invest in a few and trade up and trade up and get my dream car and put it front and center in my own collection someday. You know, it's like my, my son said to me when he was in uh, high school, he said, Dad, what should I major in in college? I said, something you can spend. He said, huh? I said, accounting or, or uh, I don't know, you know, journalism or English or uh, <laughs> marketing. or And I was throwing out options. And he said, what about music? I said, okay. Look, I said, if, if you want to major in music, first off, why would you want to major in music? Well, I love music. Well, that's good, but that that's not why you go to college. You go to college for the effect it has on the next day stage of your life. So, uh, okay, so I want to get in the music business. What part of the music business? I don't know. I just want to be around music. Oh, well, then you, any job in music would do. Well, no, I want to, uh, I want to be in a band. Ah, uh -huh. no, I'm, I'm no longer talking about my son. Uh, I'm just using an example. Yeah. You want to be in a band like whom? Like the Eagles. Whoa. So you want to go big time. You want to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You want to be part of a group that, that tours the world and is absolutely famous. Yeah, I kind of do. Okay. Get a job sweeping floors in a record store. What's a record store? It's that antiques place down there that's got these big <laughs> flat things. Why would that help? Because you're going to be around music every day. And you're going to be talking with people, answering to people and hanging around with people who are in that world. And then when you leave that job, after you've met a few people, go to work in a music studio doing deliveries. And then as you meet the bands and the artists and you get around the publishers and you learn the lingo and you start reading some of their magazines and understanding the industry, go to some of the functions like the NAM. Convention, National Association of Music Merchants, which has 100,000 people in Anaheim. And I just kept explaining it like that. And I said, within two or three years, you're going to know and be known in that industry. As a beginner, okay, but you talk their language. You're one of us, not one of the outsiders. And you will be invited to some events where you will meet some people who will open some doors and things will start expanding. And the next thing you know, you're sitting in, you're doing, you're setting up the drum kit for Bob with, with the next version of the Eagles over there. And he says, Hey kid, what do you, what do you play? And you say, well, I play a little guitar. Show me something. And here it goes. A few years later, you're touring Europe. So this example, I love it. Um, you should teach this stuff, Jim, on how to communicate with it. Uh, what, what I love so much about it is 
is I see so many people that will go, oh yeah, they get all excited and they go get a job sweeping the floor at a record store. And within two months, they get promoted to assistant manager. And within three months, six more months, a year later, they're the manager of the record store and they've lost complete sight of that dream because they got distracted that they were doing that first step for a purpose that was going to lead them to that entire pathway that you described. And you got to keep that goal in front of you. Yes, yes. All the time, all the time. And, and also the other thing I think that it, what happens when I set my goals. Now, remember I told you the 1970s? I wrote down my goals on a card. This is the old yellowed card of the qualities I wanted to develop, the future me, right? Speak ill of no one, never complain or critique uh, or, or criticize, excuse me, resist the temptation to point out others' faults, either directly or through sarcasm. That was just one of many traits I wrote on here. Frugal, save at least $25 per week. This was a long time ago. Uh, in an amount, in, in an account that I will not touch except for the direst of emergencies. You still have that. So that was from when? The, the 70s? And where do you see this? I took each of those traits and wrote them on a little back of a business card. This was my JC's headquarters business card. Holy I wrote God, it on the back of the business card and stuck it on the bathroom mirror. And you can see the water stains. And I mean, I had each of these things in front of my face every single day until they became a reality. Wow. And that is incredible that you still have those. Um, that is amazing. And I think what it speaks to is so, so much of what you've talked to. And as we kind of wrap things up for this episode, I, we got to have you back at some point. We can, there's so many more things we need to come, go into, but this idea that the, it, the discipline that you, you mental discipline that you were able to, to take is that you, once you cross that threshold and you were able to discipline your thoughts in your mind, in your behaviors, in your... And let's take a moment on discipline, though, because I've had so many people say to me over there, well, yeah, you've got this iron will, you know, this self-discipline that's unstoppable. I don't have that. Well, neither did I. Yeah. Discipline's not something you've, you're born with. It's something you develop like a muscle, you know, and, and how do you develop discipline? Well, I want to become a jogger and a runner, but I can't get myself to do it. Can you get yourself to put on running shoes? Well, duh. Yeah, of course. Can you get yourself when you put on the running shoes to walk out to the curb? Yeah. Okay, do that every day. Well, what's the good in that? Well, what are you going to do when you get to the curb? Well, I don't know. But what if I don't run? What if you do? I did that. I made a commitment to myself. I will put on my running shoes and walk to the curb 365 days this year. Every single day, sometime today, I will put on running shoes and walk to the curb. Now, one night, Paula and I were going to a formal event. I was in a tuxedo in the car. I realized I wasn't going to get home till after midnight. So I said, hang on a second. I left the car running. Paula's in the car. I go back in the house, take off my dress shoes, put on running shoes, walk to the curb, back into the house, take them off, put on my dress shoes, get in the car and go. She said, what was that about? And I explained it and she just rolled her eyes because she didn't understand that discipline right. has to be little 
wisps like spider threads that become a web that's strong enough to capture something threatening, right? Um, you got to have the threads, though. And if you don't do the threads, you can't have the cable. It's and it's such a thing today where we're the fat. You know, I call it the fast food mentality. We're so used to getting things so quick today through technology, whatever it is in, in our lives in this next couple of generations and us as well. We just expect that, well, I'm, if I'm going to be in good shape and I'm going to run, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to run for a week and then I'm going to be in good shape and I can stop running. Well, and when I did that back then, this is 1976, I said, late 75, I said, I'm tired of being fat. I want to be fit. I cannot get myself to exercise every day yet. That's a beautiful word. Uh, yet. What can I get myself to do? Walk to the curb with the shoes on. Okay, so I did that. Within six months, I lost 52 pounds and got to where I could run five miles nonstop. That's amazing. So for those listening right now, what is the thing that you most desire that you'd like to do? And, and, and what do you, what, and, and then state it with the word yet, to your point, yet. If you can't right. do it today, what is it yet? And then start to work backwards to the stuff Jim's talking about. Uh, there's, I mean, we're, I can't believe we're up against the clock on this thing, Jim, but th there's so much stuff here. There's so much gold. You know, we're going to have to go back and rewatch this episode 10 times and take a ton of notes. I know the listeners are going to want to do the same thing. You know, where can we go to learn just more about you and, and you as a mentor and you as a thought leader in this space? Where would you like folks to go? People ask me, what do you do? And I tell them I'm a mentor to experts and people that want to become experts in certain fields and to entrepreneurs. And I'm a professional speaker and author, obviously. But Cathcart, C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T, that's the key. You go to Cathcart.com, JimCathcart.com, either of those two. They're different. Uh, or just search Jim Cathcart anywhere on the web, and you're going to get hundreds of thousands of possibilities. And it'll lead you to my Facebook and my LinkedIn and my YouTube and my Instagram and my Twitter and my, you know, on and on and on. I'm out there. And I'm still going full bore, and I'll be 77 in a few weeks, and I cannot imagine not doing this. When I look back at my goals from a seminar I did in 1974 called Adventures and Attitudes, it had a question in the worksheets, and it said, when are you going to retire? And I wrote, I remember when I wrote it, 1974, never. Love it. You can come to my retirement party, Jeff. Uh, they may call it a funeral, but <laughs> it's my retirement party. <laughs> I, I, you and I share that sentiment. I can't um, ever imagine turning that that, that off. So you can you, you you don't retire, just rewire and keep chugging, right? Totally. Well, it's been an absolute privilege. I would love to have you back on again if you're up, up for it uh, down the down the road and bring it. Let's make it happen. This was phenomenal. I loved the conversation. I wish we could keep going and do it for days and days on end. Uh, but unfortunately, you and I both have other things we have to do. And uh, thank you so much. Well, folks need to get neuroselling. They need to get their copy of neuroselling just so they can flip over to chapter three and see my quote. That's absolutely right. And then they can go read relationship selling and realize everything I got wrong in neuroselling. And they fixed it. There you go. And what to do when you're the speaker. Love it. That's the one that just came out. Cool. Thank you, my friend. How much do you understand the future of finance? 
I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Bank and Transform, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.